Thank you for tuning into sermons from Liberty Baptist Church in Newport Beach, California. Our goal is to help you know God more and take the next step in your spiritual journey, no matter where you're at. If you have questions about God or about Liberty, you can connect with us at libertybaptistchurch.org. We pray that the Lord will use this message to be a help and encouragement in your life. If you have your Bibles this morning, we're going to go to Genesis chapter number 9. We're continuing in our Sunday morning series, verse by verse, through the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter number 9. And again, thank you for being here on a holiday weekend. What a wonderful crowd. It's an encouragement to me, people that are hungry to know and to grow in the Word of God. This morning I'm preaching a message that I've alluded to the last couple of Sunday mornings, and the subject matter, the topic, has created a bit of a buzz, no pun intended, a bit of a buzz (laughs) on my social media this week as I mentioned I was preaching on this subject. And uh, it's a subject on which people have some very strong feelings, some strong opinions, and upon which many professed Christians differ in belief and in practice, and I understand that. The subject, for those that might be visiting us, joining us this morning, is this morning is alcohol. And I'm bringing a message today that is titled, Why I Don't Drink Alcohol. I've spent many hours through the years, and again this week, in study on the subject of alcohol, and I must admit... In my study, I probably studied in the last week or two, maybe double the amount of time that I do for our normal message. I want to give this topic a a careful consideration, and I I guess I should have been careful and understood if I did double study, I was going to end up with double the notes. And so normally when I preach on a Sunday morning, I have eight to nine pages. I preach what's considered a manuscript for the most part. I have most of what I'm going to say written out, even though I don't look back to it a lot. Um, It just helps my mind to know that I have all the information I want to say on my notes. So normally I have eight to nine, eight and a half by 11 full sheets uh, for a morning message. And that takes me 40 to 45 minutes to get through. Are you ready? It's a holiday weekend and we don't have church tonight. So I'm going to tell you how many pages we have this morning. (laughs) 21 pages of notes this morning. Don't leave, don't leave, all right? Don't leave. Some of you are like, I need a drink to get through that. No, don't do that, all right? Don't do that. Um, We're going to end up splitting this into two messages. And so we're going to be, I'm going to be giving you 12 reasons why I don't drink alcohol. Um, But today we're only going to get through the first three. We're going to get through three of them. And uh, three weeks from today, we'll get the the remainder of the message, the other nine points. Uh, Next Sunday, we have a guest evangelist that's here for our youth rally, Eric Getch, and he'll be preaching all day Sunday. And then uh, I'll be the following Sunday with a group from our church in Israel. And so it'll be three weeks from today when we conclude this message. Uh, but, but I have too much subject matter for one, and, but over the years, and again this week, I've read every pr- passage in Scripture that alludes to wine, to strong drink, to drink, to drunkenness, and, and, and we're going to be looking at much of that. I realize, by way of introduction, I realize that the drinking of alcoholic beverages has become increasingly accepted among professing Christians, and in my lifetime, really probably in the last 20, 30, 40 years, even among pastors— and spiritual leaders. The, the percentages have, have gone much higher than they once were. A 2019 study by Pew Research reported that 51% of people that attend religious services at least once a month drank in the last 30 days. A Christian Post article in 2010 reported that 40%, that was 12 years ago, 40% of evangelical leaders say they drink socially. 
Years ago, nationally known megachurch pastor, at that time, one of the largest churches, he, he, he had to resign in somewhat of disgrace and then has planted another church in Arizona now. At that time, he was a national name. He came out, Mark Driscoll came out, and he literally said from the pulpit and repented of not drinking alcohol sooner as a pastor. That is the climate amongst many churches, and I understand that, amongst many Christians and even amongst many in my profession. I think you can get from the the title that I wouldn't fall in line with that, that that's not my personal belief or my personal standard or my personal conviction. Darren Patrick in his book Church Planner several years ago, he said the biggest problem among pastors today is drunkenness. So alcohol is not only something that culture has accepted, it's something that often in, in high percentages Christians have accepted and even Christian leaders have accepted and justified and modeled before their congregation. In many non-denominational churches and some other denominations that I'm aware of in Orange County, including some that are among the largest in our state and in our church, in our country, drinking alcohol is allowed, it's accepted, and it's even encouraged and, and actively participated in by pastoral leadership today. I say all of that to say I, I, I'm aware this isn't going to be the most popular message that I've ever preached with some people. And I'm not naive enough to think that there aren't people in our own church that, that, that is a part of your life and you have alcohol in your home and from time to time on whatever level you're comfortable with, you partake in that. I understand all of those things. Um, so it, it's, it is amazing to me, it does blow my mind a little bit how much we've accepted it in, in pastoral leadership. We that deal with the after effects of it, having seen what it's done to marriages and to families, that we would then as, as leaders, and we'll get into it especially in the second message, the, the biblical commands for spiritual leaders, it is surprising to me the high level of percentages of those in my position that partake in it. I'm, I'm good friends with a man that was a youth pastor of a large youth group here in Orange County. And, and he told me, he said in there, he's no longer at that church, but in their church budget, uh, in their youth budget, were, were large amounts of money that they would take their youth staff out to a yard house or somewhere like that, and they would get beers together as a youth staff and talk about planning for the spiritual development of their young people over alcoholic beverages. That, that's just foreign to me. I'm just going to be honest, the, the church I was brought up in, the, the, the decisions I've made in my life, that's just, but I realize that's not foreign in our society. That is the culture and the climate in which I preach this message. And, and when, when a youth worker would turn 21, they would have a bigger bash and a bigger celebration to celebrate a person in ministry turning 21, let's have a party with alcohol. That, that, that's strange to me. But, but we're going to go through, and I'm going to talk about that. I, I say all of it to say I understand that, this, that, that my stand is not everybody's stand, and, 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 and again, even within our church possibly. So you say, Pastor, if that's true, why risk upsetting or offending somebody? which, by the way, is not my goal with this message. My goal is not to, me against you, to offend somebody, to upset somebody. That's not my goal. So why would you preach this? Why risk upsetting one? Why preach it then? Why wouldn't I just take the path that many other men in my position in Southern California and across the country might take and just either don't say anything about it or skip over it? I could have very easily read the story where we're going to be, said that Noah and his children made some bad decisions and kept moving to the next passage. Why? Why preach this? For one, I, cho I choose not to take the easy path on this or any other cultural issue that the Bible speaks into for this reason, I believe that fear in the pulpit has caused ignorance in the pews. And so as your pastor, when we come to a cultural issue that the Bible does speak into, and by the way, the Bible speaks directly into this issue. We're going to see that today and three weeks from today. 
I, I'm not going to, and, and I don't, I, I like to be liked as much as anybody else. I like to get great encouraging emails, and I like everyone to say, you're my favorite guy, and I, I'd like to be voted most popular man in Orange County. I like, I like all of that just as much as anybody. But God didn't call me to be liked or to be popular. God called me to try to, to truthfully and, and carefully and biblically and humbly preach His Word. In addition, the main reason that I bring the message I bring today is because I've made a repeated commitment to you at our church to preach the whole counsel of God. I've said on many occasions that if you make liberty your church home, I'm going to make a commitment that when you come, you're going to hear the Bible preached, hopefully in context. You're going to hear it preached, and, and if you attend for years, you will hear the Bible clearly, systematically, and unashamedly preached, no matter what popular culture is promoting. In fact, I've stated that it's my goal, if God would give me 25 to 30 years to be the lead pastor here at Liberty, that I'll be able to preach verse by verse through every book of the Bible. I, want, I don't want to skip over that, and, and, and I want to preach God's Word. I've often made this statement to you that I heard from one of my mentors, a man in his 80s today, Dr. Charles Keene. I was just with him last week. He said this when he was pastoring. He said, Ryan, he told me this at an NBC Suites in Orange County as he was doing our missions conference a few years ago. He said, Ryan, I made a decision when I was a pastor. I want to be loud where the Bible is loud, and I want to be quiet where the Bible is quiet. What was he saying? Sometimes we as pastors, we're really loud where the Bible's quiet. And we put things onto the burden. We put burdens on God's people. We put, put our opinions, our preferences, our traditions. We put those things onto God's people. And the Bible isn't really clear on that issue, but we say, thus saith the Lord. And he said, I want to be quiet where the Bible is quiet. But the other side of that is, I want to be loud where the Bible is loud. And may I say that the Bible is most definitely not quiet regarding the topic of alcoholic beverages. It's not. And yet, when was the last time that you or me heard a full message on a biblical presentation of what the Bible has to say about alcohol. Probably pretty rare. I haven't preached very many of them in the seven years I've been here. Why? I, I think sometimes we, we don't want to go too far against culture. We don't want to risk alienating some people, but, but if all we're doing is coming to make each other feel good every Sunday, why do we gather? We're coming to find out what God's Word says and to apply it to our lives. And, and so the Bible is, is not quiet regarding this topic. In fact, did you know that alcohol is the second most warned about vice in the Bible? The second most warned about vice in the Bible, second only to sexual immorality. By the way, Two things that have probably hurt more lives and families and relationships than anything else. Two things that have probably impacted lives more negatively, sexual immorality and, 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 and alcoholism. So maybe the Bible really does know the best way for us to have life and to have it more abundantly. Maybe we really don't need what the world says we need for pleasure and for fulfillment and for satisfaction and for joy. Maybe we really don't need that other uh, sexual partner outside of our marriage. And maybe we don't need to sleep around before we get married. And maybe we don't need to tinker with our gender. And maybe God really knows the way that we ought to live be in these areas. The two most warned about things, vices in Scripture, uh, sexual immorality and alcohol. So as we come to the first mention of alcohol, alcohol in the Bible. It's where we find ourselves in our study, verse by verse in Genesis. The Spirit of God would not allow me to quickly pass over the story and the topic without a thoughtful handling of the text and at hand and the topic in all of Scripture. I'm going to ask you again by way of introduction, I'm, I'm going to plead with you this morning to listen with an open heart and mind, not a defensive one. 
Here's none of us, none of us like to hear preaching against things we might be thinking, doing, that maybe doesn't fall in accordance with God's word. And I'm going to ask you this week and the second week to put your guards down. This isn't Pastor Ryan against you. This isn't let me prove him wrong. This is let's take a look at what God's word has to say, and then let's ask God, God, what decisions would you have me to make in light of scripture? You're not going to answer to me, Christian, at the judgment seat of Christ. You don't, you don't owe a justification or an explanation to me for the decisions that you make. Now, I am, the Bible does say as a pastor that I will answer for you. I will answer for the way that I led you as the pastor. I will answer, did I preach truth and did I try to guide you in right ways? So I will give an account for my preaching to you. Now, you will give an account to God himself for the decisions that you make with the truth that you receive. But let's put our defenses down and let's listen to what God may want to say, not how we want to refute what is said. And, and again, if, not in just this topic, but every Sunday, if any of us come to church on any given Sunday with our minds already made up and no intention to allow the Word of God to change our hearts, our thinking, or our actions. What is the point of even attending? It's why we're here, right? To let God mold us and shape us and change us and teach us. I'm glad it's called sanctification. That's the, 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 the term that we use for growing more like God, getting more of His truth and applying it. And I'm glad that there are things in my life that I've given up and things that I've started doing and things that I've stopped doing and ways that I've started trying to treat my wife and ways that I've stopped treating her and my children. And I'm still a work in progress. I've not arrived. I'm still growing. That's sanctification. Why do we gather? One of the reasons is so that we'll receive truth and it will change us, transform us into the image of Christ. So let's ask God to do that. Listen to the totality of my thoughts. Today, some, some introductory and foundational truths. And this morning I'm going to share, and I'm going to be up front. I often will say as a, as a pastor, one thing I don't like is pastors preaching their opinions as scriptural mandate. I don't like that at all. And I'm going to be open and honest in these two messages. I will be preaching a mixture of biblical truth personal experience, personal opinion, and historic facts. There's going to be a mixture of all of the above, and I'm going to try to be very clear where the Bible is clear. We're going to wrap it all up together three weeks from now, and, 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 and at the end of that message, where the Bible is clear, and this is a thus saith the Lord, that's what the Bible says. Where it's my opinion, where it's my personal family experience, where it's my experience as a pastor, where it's statistics or historic truth. And so you can delineate through those things and, and, and seek what God has for you. So let's get started in 12 reasons why I don't drink alcohol. Let's look at our text, Genesis chapter number 9, verse number 20. Genesis chapter number 9, verse number 20. Where we're at, for those that are just joining us in our study, Noah and his family have just gotten off the ark after the flood, over a year on the, on the boat with all of the animals. God sent a worldwide flood because the, the, the world was in wickedness. Noah gets off the boat. What's the first thing he did when he got off the boat? Do you remember? He got off the boat and he worshiped. He worshiped God. God, you're so good. His relationship with God was really good. By the way, a reminder that even when your relationship with God is really good, you can still get really off track really quickly. You can, you can after living, Noah was 600 years old where we're about to read. 
After 600 years of living for God, you can mess your life up. If he can do it after 600, you and I can probably do it after 30 or 40 or 50 or 60. So it's a good reminder, let him that thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. All of us need to be on guard against the effects of sin in our lives. So Noah and his children, his family, his wife, they're the only ones on earth, and they begin to have children in chapter number 9, this chapter, and, and, or they have their children, and God begins in chapter 10, we see the, the family line. But what happens here? Right after they get off the ark and God God gives them a promise that he'll never destroy the earth by flood again. He gives us the rainbow as a reminder of that promise. Verse number 20, would you follow along? Genesis 9, verse number 20, and Noah began to be an husbandman. That just means a farmer. And he planted a vineyard. Here's the first mention of alcohol in the Bible, verse 21. And he drank of the wine and was drunken. And he was uncovered. This is a point for the, the second half of the message, but a reminder that drunkenness often it, it finds itself in really bad, sinful situations. He was uncovered within his tent. He's naked. He's, he's in a drunken stupor. He's asleep. He's, he's, he's passed out. He's not in any place that he should be as a, a man of God, a preacher of righteousness, a leader of God. Verse 22, And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brethren without. And Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were backward, and they saw not their father's nakedness. And Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done unto him. The Bible doesn't tell us what Ham had done. What we do know is that one— the curse is actually going to go on Ham's son. So we, some, some, some commentators, some theologians, they suggest that maybe it was Noah's grandson that came in and did something untoward to his grandpa. We don't know. The Bible doesn't make it clear. What we do know is Ham saw his father in an, an embarrassing situation, and instead of covering his sin, he went to go broadcast his sin. He went to his brothers and said, hey, dad got drunk. And again, uh, there's so many applications we could pull out from here. But a reminder, if we see somebody struggling, we, see, we ought not take joy in the fact that a preacher falls. We ought not take joy in the fact that fellow church members get a divorce. We ought not take joy in the fact that children make decisions and wander away from God. And here Ham sees the, the, the sin of his father, and instead of graciously going, and I'm not talking about hiding sin by covering it, but the Bible says that, that love covers a multitude of sins. It, what it means is it's not our job to go broadcast to everybody, well, did you hear what so-and-so did, and boy, what a terrible wicked— no, it needs to be dealt with biblically and with the people that it involves. But Ham, it didn't involve anybody else at this point, it involved Noah, and instead of Ham going, and lovingly, graciously covering his father's mistake, he went and broadcast it. The other brothers were mature enough and spiritual enough that they didn't even look at their dad. They walked in backwards and covered their dad up until he could wake up. And we see it says that he woke up and he, did, he knew what his younger son had done unto him, verse 25. And he said, cursed be Canaan. Canaan was Ham's son. A servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. And he said, blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. By the way, a reminder, there is blessing to handling sin correctly. There's a curse to handling sin incorrectly. There's a blessing to doing right. There's a curse that comes when we do wrong. Verse 27, God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years, and all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. What do we see in this passage? It leads to my first few points of why I don't drink alcohol. Number one, why don't I drink alcohol? Number one, I've seen the damage it does to families. I've seen the damage it does to families. What do you see in this passage? A generational curse 
By the way, scientists will tell us that alcoholism is something that even genetically can be a predisposition or it can be something that when we see it in people, it's a predisposition. When, when we see it in our parents, children, often children of alcohol, do, study the statistics, children of alcoholics struggle with alcoholism at a higher rate than those who aren't children of alcoholics. I've seen the damage it does to families, a generational curse on Noah's family and descendants. His children and grandchildren paid the awful cost. By the way, it was his sin. Now, it was Ham's uh, uh, ungodly handling of the sin as well, but it was Noah's sin that led to this curse on his children and grandchildren. Had Noah never got drunk, that curse would have never come to, to, to Noah's children or grandchildren. Noah, a godly, righteous man who was used mightily of God, had lived for God for centuries, got mixed up in alcohol after a great spiritual victory. After experiencing God's miraculous salvation, he got mixed up in alcohol and it affected his family for centuries. Ham's bloodline became the Canaanites. You read the Old Testament, wherever you see the Canaanites, you know who they are? They're the enemies of God. The Canaanites are the ones that are opponents to God. These, this, for generation, this bloodline went away from God, and instead of following God, were the enemies and opponents of God. Where did it start? What we call the curse of Ham or the curse of Canaan. And may I just stop and say something right here that, that, that I know in previous generations, there have been, in my opinion, some misguided preachers that have sought to use this verse to justify racism in America, specifically against African Americans generations ago, 50, 60, 70, 80 years ago. I've heard some of this preaching with my own ears. In fact, 25 years ago, I heard a, a teacher try to use this passage as justification against interracial marriage between uh, an African-American and, and another race. May I just stop from my opinion and study here, may I just stop and say my commentary on that? Garbage. There is this, this passage does not justify anybody's racist views. The Bible says we are all of one race. There are different tribes and tongues and nationalities. It's not my message. Maybe that'll be my next message, why I'm not a racist. I don't know. But it's not my message. But, but this passage is not a justification for your 18th or 19th century American racism. It's not what this is talking about. This curse does not somehow make slavery okay. And most of you have never heard that, but maybe a few of you have. And I just, again, want to stop and say that God is not in favor of any of that kind of garbage. Back to our text. Interestingly, so we see Noah's family cursed here. Interestingly, the next time we see alcohol was 10 chapters later here in Genesis. It was following God's judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah and his deliverance of a righteous man. Anybody remember the name of the man that God delivered out of Sodom and Gomorrah? What was his name? Lot. And what happened? Lot gets out. His wife dies. He gets out with just his daughters. His son-in-laws don't listen to him. His married daughters, if they were grandchildren, and what happens, his daughters give him alcoholic drink, and he gets drunk. And what happens, they take advantage of him physically, and they both become with child through an incestuous relationship with their father, Lot. What do we see? The, the, the early mentions of alcohol, what is it showing? The great damage, the great sin that does to children. We'll talk about some of the verses that people later on, and especially the second half of the message, we'll talk about some of the verses that people use to justify the use of alcohol and some of the ways that, that alcohol is commended in Scripture. By the way, there are verses where alcohol, a beverage, alcoholic beverages are commended in scripture. We'll talk about that in three weeks. I've heard some, again, some pastors, I think coming from a good place, they'll say anywhere where it's positive, it's talking about unfermented grape juice. That's just not true. 
We'll talk about some of that in the second half of the message, but what we do see here, I will say this, not one time in Scripture will you see the presence of alcohol making people a stronger witness with a better testimony of God's work in their lives. What you'll see is a man that was Noah, that the Bible says Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, the, the man that must have been the most righteous on earth at that time, you'll see his family cursed for generations because of alcohol. What you will find, Lot, who is listed as righteous, as just that just man, that man of justice, what you will see is great heartache, great sin, great turmoil, great damage coming into his life because he he allowed alcohol into his family. All through scripture and all through history, alcohol has had a part in the destruction of lives, marriages, and families, in my own family. Alcohol was sending my mom, my dad, and my stepmom down destructive paths, making destructive choices in their early 20s. My mom, I remember before we got saved, I remember alcohol in the home. I remember keg parties. I remember as an eight or nine-year-old boy going out to the front porch while people, and this makes her sound like a terrible mom. She wasn't, uh, but, but she was 26, 27, and she was an awesome mom, but she was living in the world, and she didn't know that I was a, a, a sinful, wicked, wretched kid that was rebellious, and so I found out there was, I saw a keg out there, and I went out, and, and I remember taking it and pouring it and trying beer. I can remember drinking beer and drinking a little wine and trying champagne, and my grandma having the nasty rum cherries. You remember those at Christmas? They had those cherries. I didn't want to drink any more rum. That was disgusting. But I, I can remember little, at times, as just an unsafe family trying sips of things when my mom wasn't watching or, or those things. I can remember that, and I remember some of the parties and the things that it did. I, my dad and my stepmom, he'll talk about the fact that alcohol was putting a great barrier and divider in his relationship with his parents, and it was destroying their relationship. He was making destructive choices. My stepmom the same. Thank God somebody invited my mom and me as a single mom and her, her only son at that time uh, to come to a church in Northern California where I heard the gospel preached. And God began to change us, and little by little, my mom got rid of the marijuana that was in our home. My mom got rid of the alcohol that was in our home, and as she learned Scripture, she made some decisions in her own life, and, and she has now, for 30-plus years, been sober. My dad and stepmom, somebody invited them to an AA meeting, and for the last 30-plus years, they've been a part of AA, and they've been sober. And I watched as, as those in their 20s who were on a destructive path because of the presence of alcohol in their lives, I watched as, as it changed in their lives. And May I stop and say the absence of alcohol completely changed my entire family for the better. So that's why I don't drink alcohol. Now we're going to get to some biblical reasons, but that's just a personal experience. The abs- I remember pre-salvation, post-salvation. I remember alcohol in the home and alcohol not in the home. And, and one of the reasons I don't drink alcohol is because I've seen the damage it does to families, and the absence of it completely changed our family for the better. My dad and stepmom would tell you it changed their marriage for the better. They were a young married couple in their 20s going to AA together. As they got rid of alcohol, it changed their marriage for the better. How many of you—let me just stop here and and, and ask this question. How many of you—you can raise your hand—know someone in your immediate or extended family whose life has been adversely affected by alcohol? Would you keep your hands up? How many of you know somebody in your immediate or extended family? Keep your hands up, please. I want you to look around. Whose life has been adversely affected by alcohol? Keep your hands up and look around. It has to be in the 80 or 90 percentiles. That's family. Now, if we were to say, how about friends? You know, an acquaintance or a coworker, it probably would be 100%. So why are we as pastors Even if it is an area of Christian liberty, why are we modeling and justifying 
something that has caused widespread negative impact in the lives of almost every family represented in this place. This idea that it does damage to families is not just my idea. 70 or 80 plus percent of us just raised our hand. How many of you, I don't mean to embarrass you, this is the uh, glory, glory to God if he's giving you victory and he's, he's saved you. This is a great testimony. How many of you would say that was me? At one point in my life, alcohol had an adverse effect in my life. Hands in every section, just about. Thank you for your honesty. Some of us have been right there personally and others of us have seen it in our families. And yet we think it's something to tinker with. That's just fun. I have fun with my friends. I go here, I go there. I I think we ought to think a little more deeply about it. What example are we setting to those around us? And I mentioned for me as a young child, I tasted alcohol here and there, but I'm thankful that I've not intentionally consumed an alcoholic beverage in the 34 years since our salvation. I I make no apologies for being a teetotaler. My wife and I like to go to nice restaurants and we'll go to nice restaurants at times and they'll have the wine list and the pairing and all of this. And from the beginning, I literally say the statement, uh, I'm sorry, we're teetotalers. Do you have any kind of cool specialty drinks that don't have any alcohol in them that you can bring that we'd like to try on an anniversary meal. I'm not ashamed of that. Why would I be ashamed of that? One, I save money. Two, I know where I'm going. I remember what the food tastes like, and I know where I'm, I know I'm going to be able to most drive home safely. If my wife won't keep correcting my driving, I'll be fine. And so, and again, by the way, like Noah and Lot, Christian, it is sometimes after we know God and his great work of salvation in our lives that we mess up in this area. Be on guard. Noah and Lot were both wonderful men that loved God and knew God, and yet they still had it bring great havoc to their families. Number two, number two, now you see why I'm not going to make it through 12. Number two, why don't I drink alcohol? Number two, you never know how it will affect you. Whose family did it so negatively affect in our passage? A preacher of righteousness. The one man on earth, when the whole world, figuratively speaking, was going to hell, the one man on earth that was living for God, and it was him, the preacher of righteousness, the one person who would have found grace in God's sight, the one who knew God, the one who obeyed God's word, the one who followed God's word, the one who had lived right in a wicked generation for centuries, 600 years old when alcohol got him and his family. He was a worshiper. The first thing he did when he got off the boat was he built an altar and he gave glory and praise to God. If it could get Noah, don't you think it might get you or me? But I can control it, Pastor Ryan. I'm not addicted. I can stop anytime. Good, do it. Really, it won't get me, and it might not, and I hope it doesn't. But none of us know. What what did Solomon, the man that tried every sinful pleasure, every selfish pleasure, everything this world has to offer to try to fulfill himself, including alcohol, what did Solomon tell his son in Proverbs chapter number 20? He said, wine is a mocker. It It makes a fool of those that partake of it. Strong drink is raging. Whosoever is deceived thereby is not what, church? Not wise. I, no, I, I've got this one under control. Do you? Do you think anybody that's in jail today for, for killing somebody driving while drunk, do you think that was their plan when they, took, when they went to that, that party, when they drank that alcohol that night? Do you think anybody said, all right, I'll see you, honey. I'll see you in 10 years. I'm going to jail after this party. No, wine is a mocker. Strong drink is raging. You never know how it will affect you. 
And because we're scared of culture, I believe we in the pulpits, uh, we, we stop preaching the truth of Jesus. I didn't make that verse up. God, under the inspiration, Solomon, under the inspiration of God, wrote that to his son. It's a deceiver. It, it makes a fool out of those that partake in it, and it can lead you to a place you don't want to be. No one starts out drinking saying, I sure hope this brings heartache to my life or the lives of my kids or grandkids. I sure hope I can spend tens of thousands of dollars on alcohol in the coming years and then spend tens of thousands more in rehab facilities trying to get out of this addiction that I spent tens of thousands of dollars getting into. I can't wait for the day when I end up behind bars for the criminal activity that flowed from a night of drunkenness. You say, Pastor Ryan, that's a fear tactic. I can control it. You're being a little, you're being a little too much. Most people don't end up in jail. I say that's a wisdom tactic. I don't want to place any confidence in my flesh. You don't know where it will take you in your life, who it will turn you into. Why would you play with fire if you don't want to get burned? The Bible literally calls alcohol a deceiver. It tricks us, but no one thinks they're going to be the ones tricked. Several years ago, the evangelical world was shocked when Perry Noble, pastor of one of the largest and fastest growing churches in America, preached to tens of thousands of people weekly, was removed from his position due to alcohol abuse. Listen to what he said at the time. He said, in my opinion... The Bible does not prohibit the use of alcohol, and this is the common theme of many pastors today. But it does prohibit drunkenness and intoxication, which is the common theme. And by the way, I understand scripturally where they get that. It's not my, my personal stance, but I understand it. Here's what he said. I never had a problem drinking alcohol socially. Never had a problem. It was fine. I could preach to tens of thousands and enjoy a relaxing glass of wine. I could write books and travel the world preaching in conferences and enjoy a little drink over, over a meal with friends. I never had a problem, and notice what he says, but in the past year or so, I've allowed myself to slide into, in my opinion, the overuse of alcohol. This was a spiritual and moral mistake on my part as I began to depend on alcohol for my refuge instead of Jesus and others. By the way, the Bible says that the Lord should be our refuge, God should be our rest. If you're looking for alcohol to bring you peace and rest, you're looking in the wrong place. God, the, God should be our peace. He said, I began, and he said, I have no excuse. This was wrong, sinful, and I'm truly sorry. A year later, he announced his divorce from his wife of many years. I don't say that with glee or joy in my heart. Think of all that alcohol costs this man that I believe knows God and truly loves God and tried to give his life to helping tens of thousands of people. Think of all it cost him. Was it worth it? If we were to ask him today, do you think he would say it was worth it? Lost his marriage, lost his pastorate, lost his opportunities. Now he's planted another church since then called Second Chance Church. I don't know much about him. I've, I've, I don't know that I've ever heard a message of him preaching. I just know of him really when his name got in the papers through this. So I can't speak to whatever that church is. I'm not saying God can't use him after his mistakes. But boy, he sure had a lot of pain and tears and heartache, didn't he? He probably disillusioned a whole lot of Christians that looked up to him as a spiritual leader, don't you think? You imagine there might be some people of those tens of thousands that don't go to church anymore because of that pastor's example. I'm not saying they're right to do that. That's probably real, true, isn't it? That's probably what happened. He never expected it would happen to him. He said, I never had a problem. He had controlled it for years. You never know how it will affect you, but the flesh is weak, church. In the 1800s, Dr. Herrick Johnson of Philadelphia, he replied, this comes from, by the way, I have a 67-page doctrinal thesis put out by William Patton. 
that talks about much of this on alcohol, the, the, the ways that things were fermented in those days in ancient times, the difference in ancient alcohol versus today's alcohol. It talks a lot about the different verses that are used today to justify it. Seriously, if you really want to study this, shoot me an email and I'll send you that. It's powerful. This comes from those 67 pages um, that I've read several times through the years that, where he does a, a thorough investigation of all of the places where wine is used and the different Hebrew and Greek meanings behind each spot. And here's what, in that passage, uh, uh, one of the people was replying to a colleague regarding the deceitful qualities of alcohol. Listen to what he said. Wine is a mocker. This is God's word. No one doubts that intoxicating wine is here referred to. Why is it called of God a mocker? Surely not because when used to excess it is hurtful. Beef is hurtful when used to excess. Is beef a mocker? We must all be agreed, I think, that wine is a mocker because of its inherent quality, a something in the wine itself by which its users are lured into excess. That something is alcohol. It deceives men. Its effects are gradual, almost imperceptible. It is seductive, tripping. Alas, the noblest and the best before they are aware. So it deceived Noah when he drank of the wine and was drunken. So it deceived Ephraim and Judah, priest and prophet, when they were swallowed up of wine. It is in the very nature of wine as an essential element, this power of deceit. Hence the scriptural injunction, it is not for kings to drink wine. We'll get into that next, the second half. Nor for princes strong drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert judgment. Hence also the command, look not upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth its eye, when it goeth down smoothly. The very quality is here described that gives its wine its deceitful power. There are the signs of the pres these are the signs of the presence of alcohol. No one doubts that alcoholic wine is here referred to, and it is this kind of wine that we are solemnly commanded not to look upon, for this kind is a mocker. The guile of the serpent is in the mixture, and at last it giveth the serpent's bite. Lastly, why don't I drink alcohol? Number one, I've seen the damage it's done to families, and we see it here in our passage. Number two, you never know what it'll, how it will affect you. We see that with Noah's life. It, it got a preacher of righteousness. Number three, there's a plethora of scriptural warnings against it. For the grammar Nazis out there, I went back and forth between is and are on that. And you can do either one, all right? So don't, don't correct me afterwards. There is a plethora of scriptural warnings against it. Solomon, a man that tried every earthly pleasure, speaks very plainly to his son in Proverbs 23. He says, let not thine heart envy sinners. Don't we sometimes think that those maybe teenagers, college students, that everybody in your age group is all enjoying parties and they're going places and all of the fun and you're missing out on that. And you're like, look at what I'm missing out on. They're enjoying that immorality and they're enjoying that, that party and they're enjoying those drinks and they're, they're enjoying that substance and they're smoking that and they're drinking that and they're trying that and they're going there and our heart sometimes envies sinners, doesn't it? Man, I wish I could have the pleasure they're enjoying. Solomon, the one that tried all of the pleasures, said to his son, son, don't let, you're not missing anything, son. Don't let your heart envy sinners, but be thou in the fear of the Lord all the day long. And here's what he says, be not among wine bibbers, among riotous eaters of flesh. He says, avoid the party scene, son. I, I'm the one that hosted the biggest bashes there ever were. And I'm telling you, you're not missing anything. Avoid the party scene, son. And then he continues on. He says, heart 
hearken unto thy father that begat thee and despise not thy mother when she is old. Son, please don't bring heartache to our lives. Buy the truth and sell it not. Also wisdom and instruction and understanding. The father of the righteous shall greatly rejoice. Son, the choice you make is going to determine if I have joy in my old age or if I'm of a bitter spirit because of your heartache. I'll greatly rejoice. He that begetteth a wise child shall have joy of him. Thy father and thy mother shall be glad, and she that bear thee shall rejoice. My son, give me thine heart, and let thine eyes observe my ways. Now here's two things. This is all in context. Here are two things that he tells his son I want you to watch out for. And by the way, Solomon says these two things lead to each other. They go together. He continues on. He says, I want you to watch out, son, for wrong relationships with women and for wrong relationships with wine, with alcoholic beverages. Son, these are the two things that will get your life off track quicker than almost anything else. I want you to date right and marry right, and I want you to keep yourself righteous. Don't envy sinners. Keep those things that could destroy your life out of your life. Notice what he says in Proverbs 23, talking to his son under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. For a whore is a deep ditch, and a strange woman is a narrow pit. It's a trap. Getting involved with a woman like that, it'll destroy your life. You'll get, you'll get pain and hurt. She also lieth and waiteth for a prey and increaseth the transgressors among men. She destroys a lot of people. And then he goes, right from there, he goes to this. He says, who hath woe? Who hath sorrow? Who hath contentions? Who gets in fights? Who's, who's depressed? Who hath babbling? Their actions make no sense. Who hath wounds without cause? There's pain they didn't need to have. They get in fights. Who hath redness of eyes? They that tarry long at the wine, they that go to seek mixed wine, look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth his color in the cup, when it moveth itself aright. That's that fermentation. Don't look on it. Don't even look at it, son. At the last, at the beginning, it looks so good. It feels so good. It seems so good. What does he say? But at the last, at the end of it. It bites like a serpent. It stings like an adder. It, it, thine eyes shall, notice how these go together. When you do this, your eyes are going to behold strange women. Uh, one, one, someone that I love dearly, brought up in, a, in one of the best godly homes I know, found himself in his early 20s sitting in a jail cell doing jail time for months, had never been involved in anything. Found himself doing that because of a night of drunkenness where he did something with a woman that he should not have done. He's accused of things. I wasn't there. And he was convicted of whatever he was accused of and spent months of his life because of one night of drunkenness. Your eyes will behold strange women. Your heart shall utter perverse things. Yea, thou shalt be as he that lieth down in the midst of the sea. What is that? Nobody tries to take a nap in the ocean. Or he that lieth upon the top of a mast, the most dangerous place in the ship to be. I think, Dave's a, I think he's probably up there on the top of the mast. You're not going to go take a, a nap up on the top of the mast. Why? Because you're going to fall off and hurt yourself. He's using word pictures here, son. You're going to hurt yourself unnecessarily. That's why you sleep on the ground. You don't need to do that. They have stricken me, shalt thou say, and I was not sick. They have beaten me and I felt it not. When shall I awake? Here's what it does to us. I will seek it yet again. I can't even remember who I was with, what I did, the pain. How did all that money get out of my account? Why do I have that ticket? How come they impounded my car? Where's the next party? That's the deceitfulness of it in our lives. When I shall awake, I'll seek it yet again. What is he telling his son? He's telling his son, don't get involved in that. 
Some say, well, this is talking about drunkenness. It says they that tarry long in the mixed wine. We'll talk about that next week, next, next message. It's talking about drunkenness, not drinking. That's the big justification for any Christian that has alcohol in their life. It's, uh, uh, drinking is not a sin. Drunkenness is a sin. I've yet to hear a, a, a Christian tell me or a pastor tell me that drunkenness is okay. Every one of them, drinking is okay, drunkenness isn't. Okay, let's just use this passage. He says, they that tarry long, which would lead to drunkenness. But then what's the next thing he says? To avoid that son, don't even look at it. And then what does he say? The other sin he warns about is a wrong relationship with a woman. How, how, how many wives in here would feel pretty good if you found out your husband was flirting with a girl at work, was sending her text messages, was buying her gifts, was talking to her, and, and, and you came and said, adultery is a sin. Being nice to someone's not a sin. Any wives in here going to go for that? I know mine's not. A lot less hands than the other time I asked you to raise hands. But, but adultery is the sin, Pastor Ryan. But you know what my wife's going to say? Don't even look at her. Don't send her that text message. Why are you talking to her like that? Why? Because of where that could lead. But, but, but she's my coworker. We're just being nice. Well, you didn't need to buy her a bracelet. Well, why, why are you doing that? We understand that in that relationship, don't we? But then we justify it in our relationship with, with alcohol. So why justify the gateway to drunkenness? Even if, even if drunkenness is the sin and drinking is not, why justify, especially as believers, as pastors, why justify the gateway to drunkenness? Solomon said, don't even look at the fermented wine in the cup. Christians, including pastors by the millions, are opening the gateway to the sin that Solomon so forcefully warned his son against. Ephesians 5, Paul says in the New Testament, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. So he's going to talk about the works of darkness, but rather reprove them, for it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. See then that you walk circumspectly, walk carefully, be careful what you allow in your life, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Wherefore, be not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. And then what's the illustration he gives? And be not what? Drunk with wine, where in his excess. And again, we as pastors, the whole thing is walk wisely, walk carefully, be wise, redeem your life. Don't waste your time or your money. And we as pastors use this as one of the biggest justifications. See their, see their church, it says not in excess. So as long as it's not in excess, we'll talk about this in the second half. I want to preach that so bad for the next hour and a half right now, but we'll talk about it in three weeks. But, but who, who defines what excess is? Who draws that line? We as pastors take an admonition from Paul to the church at Ephesus to, to be completely consumed by the Spirit of God and say, well, yeah, as long as you're just only kind of consumed with a little alcohol, it's okay. The Bible gives you just, I have liberty there. And, and if they do, they'll answer to God. But I'm just telling you, church family, I don't. Now, the works of the flesh, he says in Galatians to so the church of Galatia, the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Adultery, notice what it's, what it's listed with. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders. What's the next word? That's the work of the flesh. And somehow... A little alcohol is the work of the Spirit? I, th I, I, I can't get there. And I told you, I'll be where the Bible's clear, I'll be clear. Where it's me, I'll be clear. I can't get there. 
in the list. Every time you, almost every time you see a list of the things that we as believers have been saved by, for, from by the gospel of Jesus Christ, somewhere in there is something about wine, is something about, about drunkenness, about drink, about strong drink, with murders, and with, with wrath, and with fights, and with adultery. He says drunkenness. Then the next one is revelings. That is the parties that come from drunkenness, where alcohol is often found, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I've also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. That's some pretty strong words, church. But the fruit of the Spirit, what is it when we're guided and consumed by the Spirit, is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Isn't it interesting, generations ago when they were trying to outlaw uh, alcohol, what do they call it? The temperance movement. Temperance is a fruit of the Spirit. Drunkenness, a work of the flesh. I don't know about you, I'm not a perfectly spirit-filled Christian, but I'd rather be more on the side of the fruit of the Spirit than the work of the flesh. It's my goal. Against such there is no law, and they that are Christ, see this, have crucified the flesh, but I just like it, it's fun, I have friends, I won't get invited to parties. You've crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. The last verse I'll give today, we'll give 30 or 40 more next time. 1 Corinthians chapter number 6. Know you not, the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he goes on to list, what are the fruits of the unrighteous? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor what church? Nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And here it is. Would you read the last verse aloud with me? And this is where we're going to close. Would you read it from the word and to the end of the verse aloud? Ready? Begin. And such were some of you, but you are washed. You are sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. That list is supposed to be what you were before he saved you. Such were some of you, but the gospel has transformed you. And we'll get here in three weeks, but so often as Christians, after we've been saved a while, it's can I? Why can't I? What can I do rather than should I? How can I get closer? How can I get more, more pure? How can, I, how can I have more of the fruits of the Spirit? And such were some of you. Such were you were drunkards. That was a part of your life before. But you've been washed. Did you see it there? You've been sanctified. You've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. That, that was who you were. But the gospel of Christ filled all those holes you were trying to fill with fornication. He brought you the love you were trying to find through lust. He brought you the peace you were trying to find through alcohol. He brought you the joy you were trying to find through drugs. He brought you the contentment you were trying to find through money and through possessions. Such were some of you. Why is it such are? It's not supposed to be such are some of you. It's not supposed to be 40% of evangelical leaders socially drink. I, I, I can't get there as I've studied every passage of Scripture. I can see a little bit where they can say that drunkenness is the sin, but even if that's where we land, that drunkenness is the sin, why would I open the door to that sin in my life with the totality of all of the scriptural principles? You'll find three or four scriptures in all of Scripture that have some level of positive 
activity toward alcohol, you'll find hundreds that warn against the destructive damages of it. And we're going to talk about the positive ones. It's not that the Bible contradicts itself. We'll talk about those in the second half. There should be a difference in God's children. We've tasted the unmatched, transforming grace and power and love of God. Those are things you used to do. You used to, to, to have inappropriate relationships outside of marriage with women and or with same-sex relationships. Both are mentioned in that list. You used to bow to idols. You used to do those things. You used to steal. You used to want more. You used to manipulate people, but, and you used to spend time too much with alcohol. Such were some of you. Such were some of you. Maybe some of us need to consider it's such are some of us. Maybe, God, you need to give me some victory here. The power of the gospel should be such that people see transformation from the world in our lives, not conforming to the world. They should see a major difference before the gospel and after. I watched it happen in my home. A major difference in the way my mom treated me before and after. A major difference in our priorities before and after. A major difference in our finances before and after. A major difference in our schedules and our activities before and after. A major difference in, in, our, in what was in our refrigerator before and after. A major difference in friends before and after. A major difference in our hobbies before and after. I saw it all change at the age of 9, 10, and 11 as my mom and I was a baby Christian and we were brand new. We didn't know anything, but we would go to church and we hear the preacher preach and we would learn things from scripture. And my mom, I remember she was working on a bus route. I don't know that they should have let her do this, but she was working. I don't think they knew. She was working on a bus route while she was still smoking weed. Probably not the best thing. And, and I remember they were getting ready to have some big, and the pastor challenged us to spend time in prayer for this big outreach day that we'd reach a lot of people. And, and she said, she said, I, I feel like I shouldn't, have, no one told her stop smoking weed. She said, I feel like I shouldn't have this in my life. And God, I'm going to give it to you. I don't know how hard that was. I was 10. I didn't understand all about it. I don't know how that all worked. But I watched God, the gospel, transform her, transform our lives. And yet we that have grown up in church, sometimes the gospel transformed our parents or our grandparents, and we want to go back as close as we can to the things that God removed out of their lives. Envy not sinners, young people. Don't envy them. You're not missing out on anything. Is your testimony and the activities you're involved in, I want you to answer this question, is your testimony and the activities you're involved in showing the life-transforming power of the gospel? Does your social media feed show the life-transforming power of the gospel? It's supposed to be such were some of you, not such are some of you. So much more we're going to cover. Places where alcohol is encouraged in Scripture, other statistics and admonitions and Scripture verses. Some teaching on ancient wine versus beverages of today. Teaching on drunkenness versus gluttony. Sometimes we try to use gluttony as an excuse for drinking. We're just getting started. There's nine more reasons we're going to see in Scripture and from personal experience. I hope you'll be back. And again, I hope you'll give this topic careful consideration and ask God to be your guide. Not culture, not friends, not feelings, not emotions. I'm actually much more excited about the second half of the message, but didn't think you'd stick around for two more hours. And I thought all our nursery workers might go on strike if I preached until this afternoon. The first three reasons. I've seen the damage it's done to families, including Noah, including Lot. You never know how far or how it will affect you. Nobody expects to be the one whose life is, loses their job, can't keep a job, divorce, abuse of children, DUI, jail. No one expects that to be them. No one drinks their first alcoholic beverage saying, 
I'm pretty sure I'm going to have four, four marriages because I'm going to destroy them all with alcohol. Nobody. You don't know how it's going to affect you. And you say, Pastor Ryan, I kind of do. I've been drinking for like 50 years. Noah, at age 600, it destroyed his life. And by the way, you might be able to control it, but are you opening the door to a child or a grandchild who can't? Or a friend? Someone in your family? Number three, there's a plethora, or there are a plethora. There is a plethora of scriptural warnings against it. So if that's true, and I gave you a bunch of scriptural warnings that are very clear. They're, they're not ambiguous. Paul wasn't ambiguous. Solomon wasn't ambiguous. Old Testament wasn't ambiguous. New Testament wasn't ambiguous. I'm going to give you at least that many verses three weeks from now. The Bible is not, this is not a gray area where the Bible is neutral. There are gray areas in our lives. The Bible is not neutral on this topic. So how is God leading in your life? Is this, or maybe it's something else. Maybe this isn't something you struggle with, but you've been holding on to your thing that you know is keeping you from being who you should be for God. Is God asking you to get something out of your life so that you can more better serve him and know him and live for him and be a better shining testimony? Be a brighter light to those around you? Does anybody want what you have because they've seen the transforming power of the gospel? If the gospel isn't strong enough to make it such worse, some of you, why would they want it? If there's no change in your marriage, if there's no change in your honesty, if there's no change in your kindness, if there's no change in your forgiveness, if there's no change in your spirit, if there's no change in your communication, if there's no change in the words you use, if there's no change in your activities and in your priorities, if there's no change in the sins you're committing, now we all commit sins. I've not arrived. This is just not one I struggle with. But, 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 if there's no change, why would they want what we have? The gospel is supposed to transform us. Is the gospel transforming you? Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. I, I know I was a little hard on some of those points. I pray the Holy Spirit conveyed my, my, my heart. I'm not seeking to hurt or offend anybody, but I am seeking to preach what I believe is clear truth from Scripture. And we'll see some more. I, I didn't give full, full credence to some of the other verses today. And I thought I was going to preach this in one message. I'll do that in three weeks. So before you write me an angry hate email, listen to the second message. And then we can talk over a kind coffee rather than angry hate emails. I don't think anybody has that spirit here. And I don't have that spirit. I'm not trying to stir up contention. But I am trying to warn us. I don't, I don't want your children or mine having their lives destroyed by this because we didn't stand and teach what the Bible teaches. And they get deceived by it. You might not be deceived by it. But others might be. Thank you for listening to Messages from Liberty. Tune in next week for more Bible teaching or subscribe on iTunes to stay up to date with our current series.